Let's start off with a little word association here, okay? I, I'm going to say something, and then you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, the first thing that you uh, think of, what is it, all right? Uh, the, uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution is all about what? Freedom of speech. Okay, there you go. Now, the first article of the Constitution is... Uh, see, that, that's the one that I had to look it up. That's the one that says that uh, all the power in the United States will be invested in a Congress of the United States. Okay, now, this is what we... And I think this is the way we all learned. You know, we know the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people, in order to form. Okay, those words are very familiar to us. And then we jump to the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments to the Constitution that, that get tacked on to everything that's in the Constitution. But that stuff that's in the Constitution is precursor to this Bill of Rights. You have to have that. I mean, if you don't begin by saying that power is invested in a Congress, then what's your point of your uh, next Bill of Rights? This is, is, again, to remind you, this is what I think we've done to 1 Corinthians uh, over time, is we have taken the first four chapters and breezed through them as if they're the preamble and the opening of the Constitution. And then we like to jump over to chapter 5, at least I know I have, and you jump right into the scandals and the controversies that are going on in Corinth, and how are we going to do this? Because we, we, have, to, you know, we have to hit each one of these. Chapter 11 is about... Uh, communion chapter 14 is about uh, who can speak in worship uh, you know we're just going to hit all of those seven is about marriage and see, and we want to jump to the issues but if we miss out on these first four chapters and what paul is saying we may miss why he's not just writing law in those upcoming chapters he's not just writing regulations for the church he's explaining to them why they should have an answer that comes from God on all of this. And he's going to make that argument, and, and he wraps it up in chapter 4, where he talks about a wisdom that comes from God's Word, a wisdom that comes from Scripture. His language will be nothing beyond what is written. And what he's describing is he's describing um, a wisdom that's not based on worldly wisdom. Let's read chapter 4, and then we'll come back and, and take a look at a few things. Um, chapter 4 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn from us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings." And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. 
For I think that God has, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to, uh, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, Paul's word to this Corinthian church here, uh, it'd be interesting sometime to compare it to Romans. Romans is a church that Paul doesn't know personally. Uh, he knows of them. He can send greetings to them. He may know some of them, but he doesn't have a relationship with them other than the relationship he's seeking to build through the letter. But with the Corinthians, he has a very close relationship. He's going to describe it as a father and his children. He's one of those who, you know, we read the story of, uh, in, in Acts 18, how, how Paul was there, and they, uh, they, they built that congregation, they planted that congregation, he and Priscilla and Aquila, uh, how Apollos was there, and, and they are the, um, the originators of that group that is there. And so he's writing back to them, but this is family. He is close to these people, and he can speak plainly to them. And this is very plain speech. This is not the kind of formal speech that you would expect if Paul was talking to people that he didn't know very well. We, we, we need to give Paul the latitude to do this. He, here he explains to us what it means to be an apostle. And um, when he you know, comes to them and speaks as an apostle or when he sends a letter which represents his presence, this isn't an official speech in the same sense that we think of people with titles and positions, you know, where you'd have a, you'd have a, a podium like this and you'd have the official seal on it and he's going to be wearing his little pen for being an apostle and all of the finery and he's going to go, I, Paul, speaking to you as the high and mighty apostle and on and on and on. Okay, that, that's a formality of this, which Paul has no interest in. In fact, he hits them hard in this message. Uh, and then he comes back and puts an arm around him, and he says, Now, hey, I'm not being rough on you because I'm upset or angry. I'm, I'm, be, I'm being tough because I care about you as children, and I want to correct some behavior that's dangerous. 
And so uh, let's, let's go back and look at some of the things he says. Now keep in mind that Paul is aware of the fact, if you go back to chapters 1, 2, and 3, that they have, um, they have put Paul, some of them have put Paul up on a pedestal, like, like we were just talking about. And some of them are critical of Paul. So depending on who you ask, some of the people in Corinth will say, well, Paul, Paul he's, he's our guy. He's the number one guy. He's the guy that we need to listen to. And some of them will say, no, nah, I don't think so. Apollos was a much better speaker, and Cephas had a better philosophy, and, you know, and, and, all, and the factions are growing in Corinth. So Paul dispels that by saying, and I'm, I'm going to use the language that I like to use here. He's saying, it's none of my business what any of you think of me. And he says, um, I'm not going to get into that, and I really don't care what you think. And, 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 but he's got a reason. He's not just being arrogant like they are. He's got a reason. He's putting it in perspective. Notice what he says here, and I want to paraphrase some of this. He says, anyone who regards us, or he says, or passing judgment, or you know, evaluating us, he said, they ought to think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, which he'll continue in this letter to tell them are really no mysteries at all. But uh, Notice that he started out the letter by saying he was called by the will of God to be an apostle, a messenger of Christ Jesus. Now, apostle is not a title that one attains to, that you work for so many years, you go get your degree, you earn this, you get your title, you have to get then verified before the church council. No, you become an apostle because God gives you that job, because he calls you into it. And an apostle is simply a messenger. Paul has a message, he has to be a messenger. He has to share this. Um, So he says, you ought to to regard us simply as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And with stewards, it's required that they be found faithful. So his point is, I am accountable. If I'm a steward of the mysteries of God, then I'm I'm accountable to those mysteries. I am accountable to God. Uh, So he says, it's a very small thing. It matters very little to me whether I'm judged by you or any other human court. And another human court here might be, um, he may have included here like a school of thought or a group of, of uh, maybe like a, think of like a, um, uh, like almost like a college board, like a group of people who are the, the learned wise men of the city or the community. And he's saying, I, I I'm not, I'm not going to concern myself with their estimation or evaluation of me because that's a small thing. And he says, and whether you esteem me and applaud me and put me on a pedestal or whether you criticize me, he says, I can't make that my concern. Now, there's a lesson in just these few verses right here, I think, for all of us. Um, and, and I've often taught this in classes and uh, with, other, with people. Um, I've just... You know, just everyday teaching, and it was a lesson that was taught to me. It's none of your business what other people think. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what people think about you, and it doesn't mean that you don't necessarily, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we all want a good reputation. We want people to think well of us, but we can't make it our business. Because if we make it our business to manipulate, control, and manage what other people think, we're going to be after the wrong thing. Think of a minister. A minister's in a church, and if he's always concerned about pleasing the people, then how can he preach the truth? 
if he's always concerned about uh, making everyone comfortable, then how can anything, how can anyone ever grow? Who do we expect our elders to be accountable to? To us, are they our elected representatives? And so we want them to do, you know, we want them to make sure that the that the temperature and the lighting in here is always to our satisfaction and our preference? No, we want them to teach us how to live. Uh, and likewise, it's what we ought to expect of one another. But the focus should be on pleasing God. And if we're pleasing God and living out His ways, if we make that our business, then those who find that to be refreshing or acceptable or beneficial will appreciate it. And those who don't, they won't. Jesus Christ himself could not control the expectations of the crowds that he pre preached to. When the people turned against him and when they decided that, when the leaders of Israel decided that he was a troublemaker and they decided to be done with him, even he couldn't persuade them to change their mind. He was simply focused on pleasing his father and he was going to be obedient even if it cost him his life. I think that if we would make that our focus, life might get a little easier in some ways because we wouldn't be so worried about what others think and we wouldn't be worried uh, about courts of judgment that we can have, that we have no insight into. Because, you know, Jesus himself even said that uh, the people of his day were fickle, that, uh, you know, here comes John the Baptist and you know, he dressed like Grizzly Adams. He's got cricket legs hanging out of his mouth, you know. And he, and, uh, he says, you know, you all said he had a demon. You know. Now I show up, and he's got on his fine clothes, and he's going to weddings, and you say, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. And he says, you're like the children in the marketplace, saying, you know, who can't be pleased. Paul, I think, is taking from this same wisdom and is saying, you know, I can't make it my business to worry about your judgment of me because... And that now he goes a step further. He says, in fact, I don't even justify myself. Notice what he says. He says, uh, that doesn't, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. In other words, he's not acquitted just because he can't think of anything that anyone could have against him. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, if the Lord judges us, that's actually a good thing. Because the Lord is a good judge. We're bad judges. You know, we're fickle, just like the people in Jesus' day and age. And we don't know everything that the Lord knows. But think of it like this. If all of the world says that what we're doing is um, ridiculous, a waste of time, if they think that we're a bit backwards or old school or if they think that we've got some funny ideas. But the Lord says that these are my people and this is the way it's done and this is the way it's, it's right. Put those two judgments on the scale. The Lord's judgment always weighs out against the judgment of others. Then again, if we seek the, you know, the accolades of people and of the society and if we do well... And uh, we have people praise us, but the Lord says, no, I need you to change your ways. Then how does it balance out again? The Lord wins the balance. The Lord's judgment will always overrule every other judgment. So Paul's saying, I'm simply going to make that my focus 
And I think he's setting an example for them. So he starts off by dismissing their judgment and saying, and in, in fact, he even dismisses his own judgment. He himself cannot judge himself or anybody else. The Lord stands in judgment on all. And he says that's good because that's a good and fair judgment. He says, so don't pronounce judgment before the time. In other words, leave it to the Lord. And by the way, one of the things I think that helps us too in that time perspective that he gives, I, I find this a lot. I was talking to, uh, oh, I was talking to a fellow some time back and, and I said, uh, you know, I said, you're carrying a burden for your oldest son, aren't you? And he said, yeah. And he goes, I, I, I said, well, here's the thing you need to understand. His story's not over yet. And sometimes we want to judge people and say, oh, you know, they've made this decision. This is where they're at. And that's it. We've lost them. They're not following God anymore. Well, hold on. Their story's not finished yet. Let's wait and see how that story finishes. And I know that can cause us anxiety, and I've got anxiety about a lot of friends who made some poor decisions or made some decisions maybe that I'm not you know, really excited about. But I've also learned, well, wait, their story's not over yet. So let's see what happens. Don't judge anything before the time. Let's, let's see what happens. Uh, and that, doesn't, that doesn't mean to say that everything's just A-OK, not at all. That means, once again, do I want people to please me and meet my expectations, or do I want them to meet the Lord's expectations? Well, the answer to that's obvious. We want people to meet the Lord's expectations. He says, um, when, by the way, when that judgment comes, notice why the Lord is a good judge, because he knows the things hidden in darkness. He knows the hidden purposes of the heart, and he can give commendation. So, the Lord sees all. He's, he's the best judge that there is. And so everyone will receive their commendation from God in God's time, in God's judgment. Now he says in verse 6 why he's bringing up all this. He says, okay, I've applied this to myself and Apollos for your benefit. He's, he's admitting to them that he's made an example of himself and an example of Apollos so that they may learn not to go beyond what is written. What he's um, coming to here is their, their tendency to make comparisons. And you're gonna, we're going to see this. This is why this material is so important. They know what's going on. They know what he's talking about. It's not a mission. We have to read on to find out what's happening. But they get it. They know because they're living it. And not only do they have this uh, different concern with who they follow and who the best teacher is but they compare gifts those who can speak well have a better gift than those who can't those who can speak in uh ecstatic heavenly tongues have a special power that others don't uh those who can pray and prophesy have more of a gift and are of more use than those who can't so they're looking for the gifted talented people the special especially empowered people in the church and there are some debates and some arguments over whose gift is best and uh, who has more spiritual power than others who's who's more holy than someone else and 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 the the, the contest is going to just it's just going on in corinthian in corinth and uh and there are divisions among them because of this so what he's saying is he's saying that look i'm applying this principle this logic of the Lord's judgment, to myself and to Apollos. And he's going to say, you know, Apollos is regarded as the better speaker. In other words, he has a better rhetoric. He has that ability 
to speak, which was uh, an ancient virtue, one of the, the best virtues for a, for a speaker and a leader. You had to have a good presence. Um, but he says, we're just, we're just stewards of the mystery of God. We're just servants. He says, I've applied this to, to us so that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. And here's why. So that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. I like it. Paul is using this word puffed up, and it's going to come up again and again. It'll come up at the end of this chapter. It'll come up in chapter 5. It'll come up in chapter 8. And it'll come up in chapter 13 because love is not puffed up. And uh, it's a great image. This puffed up person who's all full of themselves and proud. You know, we talk about somebody getting the big head, right? This is the equivalent of that. Their their egos are puffed up, and they're all getting the big head, and they're all thinking that they're... And Paul's saying, well, listen, I don't want you to go beyond what's written because that's all you need, that's all that's required. If you do, then you're going to start judging one another and judging me and judging others on the basis of what you think makes for a good leader or makes for a good disciple, that, you know, what are the extras that somebody has to have to be a good leader, and that's going to lead to a cult of personality, and that's going to lead to a group that's going to exalt the wrong thing. Because it's, it's a strange thing about the history of Christianity. Whenever we've always added stuff to Christianity, you know, the way of Christ, the things that we add in that we think are important in addition to, and we'll even admit, we'll admit, you know, now Scripture's sufficient, the way of Christ is complete, but as a good idea, it's always good, in addition to that, to be a good speaker, to you know, be a member of this political party, to you know, have some wealth, to have some education. All those things that we always add in, those become our focus, more so than the way of Christ. Why is that? And those become the things that we fuss and fight over. It's a strange reality of history. Um, you know, it's all those little extra things over there that we let define us. So are you one of those Sunday school groups or one of those not Sunday school groups? I, I once, I had, we had a uh, church in Texas. Uh, the minister there was from one of the no Sunday school churches. And, um, and actually they were, they were more than that. They had the, um, you know, I don't know, orphan's home issue. And like an idiot, I asked him, I said, uh, you know, I was getting to know him pretty well. And I said, hey, I said, you know, over in, uh, you know, on our side of the fence, uh, we're admitting that there's a division. I said, over on our side of the fence, we call y'all aunties. What do you call yourselves? And they said, the church. <laughs> I was like, yeah, good answer. Um, and that was the better answer. And again, we let those things define us. They may explain us, but even still. Paul's saying, why don't we let... God's judgment determine who we are and let us not go beyond what's written. Uh, so now he's talking about, again, let's not get puffed up over this stuff. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? He's talking about their gifts now and their, and their privileges. You didn't, you know, he's saying uh, you didn't get there on your own. God gave that to you. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If it was a gift, why not give honor to God for that? How can you say, I earned that? 
or I've, I've developed this, or I'm special in this way. He says, already you have what you want, already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And there's a little bit of uh, sarcasm in what he's saying here. He's saying, oh, that, would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now he brings in an image that may not be as familiar to us. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all that men sentenced to, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Okay, this is why knowing the background can, can be helpful. What he has in mind here is the idea of the, of the Roman triumph procession. And you've probably seen something like this in movies. You've probably seen something like this on History Channel, but you can look it up. But you know, if you've even, uh, you know, at least, at least somewhat familiar with Julius Caesar, the, uh, the Roman general would come into the city and uh, he would be honored. And he would be the first in the parade, in the procession. Okay? This is their ancient equivalent of our ticker tape parade. You know, where you put the heroes in the car and you rain down all the ticker tape and you have the procession in the big cities. Okay, well, this is theirs. You'd put the, the hero, the general, in the, uh, the war chariot and he would be coming back from battle. He would be victorious. And everyone who followed after, there would be all of the, uh, uh, the, the Roman historians describe this, there would be the, the, the wonderful things that they brought back from the conquered lands. But the losing generals, the people who lost, the people who were defeated, they would be at the end of the procession. They would be the last of all. And their purpose in being in that parade would be to be humiliated, to be looked down on. I mean, th- these people are not good sports. This isn't the way you do it in the first century. When you defeat someone, you let people know it. When the Romans uh, defeated... Um, the Jews in Jerusalem in the first century, they would mint coinage that would show the destruction of the temple. I mean, they were printing propaganda money that said, look, we beat you. Don't forget it. And they let people know that. And, 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 and that's how they, inti- they, they not only ruled by power and force, but by intimidation as well. Uh, this is why, by the way, some of the Jews objected to that money that was used and why, okay, this is an aside, why over in Revelation the, uh, the mark of the beast may be coinage because it would have these uh, pagan symbols on it. But anyway, that's, that's another lesson for another time. Here he's using this image of the defeated people and he's saying, here, here's, here's the gist of it, he's saying, you Corinthians want to be the general in the war chariot. You keep trying to be the person at the front of the procession. He says, as for us apostles, we're defeated. Now, he's not talking about this in a bad way. He's actually turning values upside down. He says, we're the defeated. We are the conquered, we apostles. That's going to be a shock to them. The, uh, the great philosophers of the first century that Corinth would be familiar with, the great teachers would say that the, um, the ideal person, the ideal man, and it would really be a man for them, the ideal man would be someone who is strong and free and self-sufficient, someone who, is, who has uh, built themselves into a new person, a self-made man. And it's really the same as our idea of the, uh, 
you know, the rugged cowboy, you know, doesn't need anybody. John Wayne out on the frontier, you know, he's got a gun and a horse and that's all he needs. And uh, everybody else is just weak. But Paul's turning this upside down and he says, yeah, I guess we are weak because we're the conquered. And this is why he uses this, this uh, and, and again, he's hitting them. He's hitting them hard. He says, we're fools for Christ. Oh, but you're wise. We're weak, but you're strong. Uh, you're held in honor, but we're held in disrepute. Now, if he's going to say that they're the last in the line, that they're the conquered, and again, he's not, he's not asking for a pity party. He's not coming in there playing the poor preacher, you know. I don't even have enough money to buy my kids Christmas gifts. You know, he's not coming in and doing all of that. He's just saying, you know, if you're going to put us in that procession, I mean, people, if, if you can imagine someone saying, okay, Paul, here's the Roman triumphal uh, procession. As a follower of Christ, where do you think you should be after all you're an apostle? And Paul says, put me at the end. Why? He says, because we've been conquered by God. God's the one that conquered us. And think about Paul's story and what you know about it. He was putting himself up in the war chariot. And then he got knocked out of it. He is the conquered. He says Christ, by the, by the values and standards of the world, Christ would come in at the end of that procession. And by the way, a lot of those generals that would come in at the end of the procession those defeated generals who were at the end, they were being led to their execution in many cases. So here's Christ who they accused him of claiming to be king and they humiliate him and they crucify him. Paul says there's no other place for us as followers of Christ except at the end of such a procession. And after hitting them point blank with this, he says, now listen, I'm telling you this not to degrade you or humiliate you but to admonish you to correct you because trying to get up front in the war chariot that's going to lead to all sorts of problems we have our own metaphors that we can put in here uh, some of us have heard about climbing the corporate ladder what's at the top of the corporate ladder a big fall for some people yeah uh, but success we're all supposed to achieve and by the way if we get our values skewed we'll make that our focus just like adding things to the way of christ gets us uh off course i can still remember from um, quite some time ago i guess it was the early 90s i was in abilene and they had the abilene lectures and mike cope came and preached about success and how it could be a fatal attraction. That's when that movie was out, and so he's, he's clever. But I still remember hearing that upside-down value that, yeah, we can, even in ministry, we can try to pursue success and we'll get it all wrong. Here's Paul saying, no, we're just going to go to the end of the line where they would put our Lord Christ. If that's our option, not going to climb that ladder, not going to get in that procession. And Paul says, so I don't care who judges me. I'm not, that's not going to be my business. Um, so by the, when, when you read verses 8 through 13, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. 
Well, now in whose eyes are they fools? They're fools in the eyes of the world. And he's already brought in this idea of the foolishness of God. Uh, back in 119, he said that the cross is uh, foolishness to the Greek. It's scandal to the Jews. In 2.7, he says that a... Um, yeah, 2.7, he says that uh, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, uh, that... Um, he says, we've not received the spirit of the world, verse 12, but the spirit who is from God. And so there is a wisdom that comes from God that is wiser than the wisdom of the world. It makes the wisdom of the world look like foolishness. He's still thinking about all of that when he says this. He still has that in mind. And this is the antidote to being puffed up. This is the antidote for wanting to pursue the lead position in the parade, which is one of their problems. If you read through verses 8 through 13, what you need to see in the background of all of that is the cross of Jesus. So, we're fools for Christ's sake. We are weak, but you are strong. The cross was an image of weakness. Uh, you're held in honor, but we in disrepute. The cross was a symbol of shame. It put the crucified one in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Look at the cross in the background. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. Look at the cross again. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You can also read Isaiah 53 in this. That by following God, the world may persecute and misunderstand us and put us down. So he's telling them, I, if that's going to be the case, then so be it. That's the case for us apostles. And again, what I think we have to be careful of, and what he's telling them, this is why he's admonishing them, is he doesn't want them to import any of their worldly wisdom and start mixing it in with the wisdom of the cross or with the message of the cross. He says it would be better to just fully embrace the foolishness of the cross than to mix that wisdom in there that says, well, what if we can be a Christian and a worldly success at the same time? Maybe there's a way to do both. He says, stop trying to mix that together. Stop pursuing that. He said, if you did, yeah. He said, oh, wouldn't it be great if you did become kings and then we could rule with you? Yeah, that's fine, but that's not the case. Um, and then he has to humble them a little bit and say, you have many guides, but you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I urge you then to be imitators of me. This is just what we were talking about this morning in our worship in Deuteronomy 6. The people need role models. Remember who, the, who these people are. They've, they've only been a church in existence for maybe well, less than five years. Maybe not even that long. They don't, they don't have, the only scripture they have is what they know of the Old Testament, what they've been taught. They don't have centuries of tradition. Uh, they haven't even been around as long as we have been as the West Ark congregation. And so what they do have is they have examples. They have Paul, and he's sending Timothy, who Paul has taught, and he's saying, I'm sending you someone to show you what this kind of behavior looks like in practice. It's understandable that they would be drawing from the wisdom of their age. 
but he wants them to know how dangerous it is. And then that's when he says, um, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Verse 18, there's the puffed up word again. But he says, I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, these puffed up people, but their power. He's saying here, they've got to not only talk the talk, they've got to walk the walk. That's part of what he's saying. We'll see if they really believe it. But when he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, he is is, um, bringing reference to the fact that there is a power behind this that, that he doesn't control. Not a power that he can command or summon. That's not what he's saying. It sounds sort of like he's giving them some tough talk, and he says, yeah, well, when I show up, you know, we're going to have a duel out in the streets, and I got the power of God on my side. Okay, that, that, that'd be just as arrogant and puffed up as he's accusing them of being. He says, but we can talk about a lot of things, and we can make, again, he's, he's putting a pin in their arrogance, and for them, the power is in your ability to talk. The great philosopher, the great teacher was the person who could talk and win an argument and shut everybody else down and win a debate. That was the great, the great you know, leader for them. He says it's really about the power, the power to do, the ability to do, a power that comes from another source outside of ourselves. And, and we're going to see that as he goes through this letter and he talks about the real power. In fact, The greatest power he's going to talk about is in chapter 13. The greatest spiritual gift. Love. He says of all the gifts, he's he's going to hold that one up high. Why? Because it just sounds good and it's what we always expect in movies and literature? No. Because Jesus Christ embodies love and God himself is love. And so... When we love, we are more like God than at any other time with any other gift. So, and, and he's speaking to them in love. And out of that love, he's, he's, he's using some tough talk too. He says, so what, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Um, their arrogance is based on their pretentious ideas that they have special wisdom and that they are not accountable to any authority now Paul is not saying that he has no authority he does but that authority is based on their personal relationship they are in a struggle for authority and we're going to see that as we go further into the letter but um, you remember the um, The man who came to Jesus and he said, being a man under authority, I recognize authority. The greatest, um, you know, again, we don't have to put ourselves at the front of the procession in the chariot to be important. Uh, Sometimes if we can stand at the end of the line, we understand that God has an authority over us and he's conquered us and that, more than anything, will set us free from the stuff that makes life so difficult. We'll we'll leave it right there and then next week we will pick up in chapter 5 and we'll see how these answer real problems where people are living outside of authority. 
Uh, as we sing this song, if you need to partake of communion, uh, it's been prepared for you. You can go and uh, partake of that in room 100. Uh, let's, let's stand, let's sing, and then Lee will dismiss us in prayer.